the Lord wanted me to speak a word to the church. And if by chance you're watching at home, then I'll ask you to do your best to put aside all distractions and find a place of intensity where you can focus your mind on the word and allow the spirit of the Lord to speak to you. I want to read one verse of scripture from the book of Kings. And the chapter is 16. There's one single verse. I read from verse 34 of 1 Kings. In his days did Hiel, his meaning Ahab, in his days did Hiel, the Bethelite, build Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof in Abraham, his firstborn, set up the gates thereof in a youngest son, Zagub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. I preach the blood of sons. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There are pivot points in our lives that often materialize in great blessings or in violent shifts. Like the quakes beneath the ocean's floor, the waves of these pivots often reach beyond the comfortable borders of our present moment. The Bible features a few of these moments. The entire construction of the Ark of Noah and the closing of the door by God's own hand was one of the world's most dramatic pivots. The visitation of an angel to a virgin girl was another, the incarnate God presenting himself in the house of bread they called Bethlehem. It opened the door for us to see the image of the invisible God. Mary and Joseph held him in their hands. There are other major moments in the scripture, some of which are hidden in plain sight. I present one of them tonight. The Lord spoke to me a few months ago, and I knew this night would come, that I would share the word that the Lord had spoken In the scripture, it began on the first day of Israel's entry into the land of promise. They stood before their first real opponent in the form of Jericho. The children of Israel, now led by Joshua, huddled in mass to see the great and mighty city of Jericho. Its walls were built for protection, even more so for intimidation. In war and in conquest, great generals of the world have all stated that the first battle of any war often sets the tone for all that will come after. These are the moments in which beliefs are developed, ideas, even philosophies. In Latin, we would call it stare decisis, which means let the decision stand. It entails precedent. The first battle often sets the precedent. A great victory or a terrible loss can produce corresponding emotions for the future. We may never know how many have given up because they failed the first time. Or how many have journeyed onward because they succeeded the first time. Take your pick Confidence and fear are often found in the first moment. They are pivot points of life. 
They have power to push us forward, even move us beyond our most natural ability simply because we think we can do more. No one can ever tally the benefit of the initial success or the loss. So consider Joshua. He has led the people across the Jordan River, parting the waters. But crossing waters had already been in their history. The Red Sea was 40 years prior. So water crossing on dry ground was not completely unusual. But traversing great walls, they had never seen such. None of them had ever been witness to a place like Jericho. It was the gateway to Canaan. It was the most fortified city of its time. It was their precedent-setting moment. Walls so thick that the people of Jericho could literally ride chariots atop them. Walls so high, no one could ever cross or crawl or climb over them. And Israel had no strength to knock them down. They had no advancements of military weapons to overcome them. Jericho's entire claim to fame came from those impenetrable, towering walls. There is a group of historical scientists, I think they're secular in nature. They have been working on facts and what they call fiction of the Bible. They've studied the world over and marked out all the places of the Bible's accounts. They've marked off the remnants of the Bible's stories, if they could find them. Indeed, they have found some markings. They found jewelry, coins, stones, crossings, imprinted artifacts showing what they call the validity of the scripture. But when it comes to Jericho, they say that there is no evidence that the great city ever existed because they haven't found any fallen stones. They haven't found any outline of the Bible's account or buried stones. These historical scientists believe that if the city of Jericho existed, that there would be evidence, at least of these great stones still in existence today. So they doubt that it ever happened. And they discount that Jericho ever existed. And for certain, that there were no walls. But I say that when God sets people free or removes a stronghold from our lives... He may never leave evidence that we ever were bound in the first place. I'm considering the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that when they came out of the fiery furnace, the Bible said their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. There was no evidence that they were ever bound or in a fire. And I'm looking at people who are living blessed lives without whatever evidence used to be and the past is gone. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. He can take what you were addicted to and make it disappear. He can take the past and wipe it out. He can take your past infraction and remove it altogether and throw it into a sea called forgetfulness. There is no reason to think that those walls need to be found to validate this Bible, this forever settled word. God could have ground them into powder. We only have our English translation of the Hebrew and Aramaic wording. They tumbled or they fell or they were removed. They could have fallen back into the form of the dust from which they came. All I know is that Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And on the seventh day, after marching seven times, perfection upon complete perfection, those walls came down and Joshua sealed his leadership and set the precedent for every other battle to come. Mm. They knew. If God can take down those walls, he can take down anything. Can you hear that tonight? If he did it before, you can be confident he can do it again. We all should be confident regardless. He can do it again. But of course, at the very least, we have to know that he's able to do whatever he's done before. Let it be said, God can raise the dead because he has raised the dead. He can provide a table in the wilderness because he has done that already. 
He has set in emotion every answer that we shall ever seek for. He has done it. Healing is not a challenge to God. Restoration is not limited to God. He has. He can. He will. Of course I know that he can do something he's never done. But just for our consideration, if he has done it before, he can do it again. Why are you concerned about going through an issue or climbing a mountain? He's already taken that out before. He can do that again. Think with me now. Those mighty walls of Jericho, they were an affront to the promises of God. They stood like a barrier between God's provision and those people who had walked out of the wilderness. It wasn't just 40 years of wandering. No, no, this, this moment was pivotal. It was also those 490 years of bondage. It was the fulfillment of the covenant of Abraham. God said, wherever you walk, wherever you plant your feet, it will be yours. And those children, all of Abraham's descendants were about to enter into the promise given by God. But to get there, the first battle had to be won. And the first came in the form of the great walls of Jericho. You can make it through Jericho. The rest can be won. Joshua knew the significance of that moment. He understood the gravity of this victory. Perhaps his entire leadership would hinge on those few days wherein he crossed the Jordan and then approached Jericho. I don't have time to speak about it all, but it took the work of the Spirit to bring them to this point. Parted waters and falling walls. They are the stories of our lives. A parted Jordan and a shattering of Jericho's fortress. God, ladies and gentlemen, God took down the walls. God did that. That was God. That was the Lord. That wasn't ingenuity. That wasn't talent. That wasn't good intention. That was God. God took down the walls. God destroyed them. If they can't be found, he scattered them. God did that. Let me do that again. That was a spiritual That was the hand of God. Because Joshua wasn't smart enough to do it. And the people weren't strong enough to do it. They didn't have cannons and bombs and guns. That was a God moment. God took down those walls. Either he buried them so deep they could never be found, or he just took his breath and just, and they became dust like the sand of the sea. God did that. Joshua fought the battle, but not after God did what only God could do. It was a supernatural victory. It was the hand of our all-powerful, omnipotent Lord of hosts to flatten, to fall, to powder, to dust. God did the work, and Joshua just made his charge. I'd like to say it again. God did it. And that moment, that pivotal moment set the tone for the rest of Canaan. Everything came about because of Jericho. Now we know just from history that Jericho would would continue to exist as a city, but not in the same way. People would live in that area, but the enemy would no longer have a footing. They crossed over Jordan, and the Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. That's what God said when they crossed over. They've crossed over without any tangible victory. They had to face their fear and it came in the form of the walls of Jericho. And what were the elements there? Obedience and unity and praise. It became the tools of war. What was meant to terrorize them became trivial. 
what was meant for shock and awe was laid to waste in the noonday sun. And the enemy thought that the higher the wall, the higher that physical wall, the lower the human will, and they were right. But they never counted on the supernatural move of the Spirit of God. God brought them over and removed their reproach. The moment of such consequence gripped Joshua. He was approaching Jericho. He knew what it was going to take. And he came upon what looked like a man with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua, in his naivety, not even knowing he's naive, he asked the man whose side he's on. And I quote, art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, nay, no, but as the captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said to him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place where thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Because before he ever fought the battle, there was a spiritual intervention. The spiritual implications of it all are staggering. The Ark of the Covenant moving into the Jordan River. The parted waters of the Jordan. The types and the shadows of baptism. The theophany, perhaps maybe an archangel, maybe Michael himself, waiting for the arrival of Joshua to make his approach. All of it culminating in the ensuing battle and the supernatural work of the great God of heaven and earth. It was awesome, breathtaking to consider the sum of it all. How when the walls came down and the armies marched in and defeated them and killed the enemy, when it was all over, Joshua stood up and made this decree. And Joshua jured them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth the city Jericho. If he does it, he shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn. And in his youngest son, he shall set up the gates of it. It was a curse ordered by God's chosen men. It was, a, it was chiseled in their hearts like the deepened etching of a stone. Cursed. Like Paul's astonishment of anyone who would change the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection into something else. Paul said that if anyone preaches anything else that I preached, let him be accursed. He said if angels come down and preach a different gospel, let that angel be accursed. Man cannot change the message and an angel cannot change the message. You ought to be careful before you follow a religious celebrity. They cannot change the message. Nobody can change the message. If they do, they're cursed. Let me just, let me just hold it there. If anybody changes the message, they're cursed. There's nothing like being cursed. Judas betrayed Jesus. He hung himself. The branch broke. His body scattered on the ground. And they took his body. They buried him in a wasteland of unredeemable clay called the potter's field. They called it the field of blood. It was without redemption and without hope. Sealed forever. Cursed. Even Jesus said of him in Mark 14, it would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Cursed. Joshua said it. God took down those walls and cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild the city of Jericho at the cost of his firstborn son. He'll lay the foundations at the cost of his youngest son. Literally, he will bury his son in the, in the building of the foundation and he will bury his secondborn son in the building of the gates. He will kill them. The abomination of a thing. The horror of it all, the horror of horrors, to slaughter your own for the sake of God's. It was the ultimate debauchery. The heathens did it so many times in the fire before Molech and also in the rivers and unto Baal and unto the other gods of metal and stone. They did the same. It was abhorrent. And Joshua put a curse on whoever would build again what God had taken down. Joshua said that at the cost of rebuilding what the supernatural hand had destroyed, it would be the death of their children. I cannot help but think the weight of those words held 
in the hearts of the people was a burden on them. But they moved on. They will move beyond those smoldering remnants and ash. They'll seek out new lands and new battles. And unlike Jericho, the rest of Canaan, they will keep the spoils of war. Not Jericho. Because the first always goes to God. Tithing is not just 10%. It's the first 10%. Achan suffered this horrible lesson when he took the first that belonged to God. The first always belongs to God. The people entered the land of Canaan and enjoyed their many victories. Caleb, the Bible says, found his mountain. His daughters discovered their valleys. The people reaped from vineyards and gardens and held fruit of the field in their hands without waiting for the season to change. All of it was prepared for them in advance. The wealth of the wicked was indeed laid up for those righteous people. The high priest began to lead the people and after them judges and then prophets stepped forward to guide them. And finally the kings, Saul, David, Solomon, and the list runs deep. So many of their leaders failed them. Israel and Judah, the divided nation, were mostly void of holy living. A handful of kings would tear down idols only to have them rebuilt by the next generation. That vicious cycle of imprisonment, repentance, victory, sin, imprisonment, destruction, then repentance followed by prayer, victory, rebellion, destruction, repentance. It was spinning like, like a top to the annals of time over and over again. Israel's and Judah's many kings delved deep into sin and idol worship. But none of them went as far as Ahab. He was the worst of the worst. All of those past wicked kings and corrupt leaders seemed to funnel into King Ahab. Here's your Bible, 1 Kings 16, 33. And Ahab made a grove. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. No one moved God to anger like Ahab. None listed, known or unknown, provoked the Lord like Ahab. And then to prove how much he provoked the Lord. The writer of the kings will now show how far Ahab would go to provoke the God of Israel. How bad was he? Real bad. How evil? Real evil. That was verse 3. He's real evil. But verse 34 will describe how evil. Here it is. In his days, in Ahab's days, did Hiel... The Bethelite build Jericho and laid the foundation thereof in Abraham, his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Zagub, according to the word of the Lord, so many years before which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. Maybe by kingly decree, Hiel will become the architect. Or perhaps by the order of the false prophets of Jezebel are those prophets of the groves. Hiel will do the unthinkable. He will sacrifice his two sons in order to rebuild what God had torn down. The blood of sons was the cost of his reconstruction. He sacrificed his family to put back what the spirit had taken away. Think of this. Maybe it was mysticism or to please one of the inanimate gods of his time. But at the cost of his firstborn son and of his secondborn son, Hiel physically restored what the spiritual God, the spirit, removed. Hiel's name means the life of God, which indicates that at some point he was or his father and mother were followers of Yahweh. His name was indicative of his religious heritage, his faith. We cannot know for sure, but it is assumed that because of his name and his origin, Hiel turned away from the law of Moses and turned toward the law of Ahab. He let the ruler of his day, the environment of his day, are you hearing me? He let the environment of his culture, his society, his leaders dictate his life's ambition and in the process he lost his family and he didn't just lose it haphazardly he purposely gave them away because when you rebuild what God destroys you purposely destroy your home 
Maybe it never crossed his mind that the foundations and gates of Jericho would cost him his sons, that their blood would be the price of the king's pleasure, but it always is the price of the enemy's pleasure. Surely he did not know how far he would go, surely. But the curse spoken by Joshua came to be the epitaph of Hael's life. So with reckless abandon, Hael mixed the life and the blood of his children into the mix and mortar of the gates and the foundation. There are Hebrew historians and Jewish theologians. They're the old theologians. They've written and they've said that Hael not only regretted his decision, but that he went mad at the memory of what he had done. He had lost his mind. I cannot tell you that for sure. But I do wonder if every time Hael walked past the gates of the city of Jericho, a distant voice called out to him like an echo of his own conscience. Daddy, why did you sacrifice my life for your advancements? Dad, didn't I mean more to you than your job? We know through the Bible that blood speaks. And I wonder if there was an echo from the blood of his sons that haunted his memory. I wonder. What would provoke him to do that? What would make him want to rebuild something that God had torn down? That God had destroyed? Set free by the Spirit only to make a prison and climb back in it. And Paul wrote it to the church at Galatia. Galatia, and he said, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Paul wrote, as both a presumption and a present reality, be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage, which means that you can be entangled again. God Ladies and gentlemen, has removed things from your past. It wasn't this church that did it. It wasn't, it wasn't the organization of the campus that did it. God did it. It wasn't a personality or a celebrity. It was the Lord God Almighty, the Spirit of God, who took down the walls of your life and restored you. God removed things from your life. God set you free by his own blood that he spilled on Calvary. The Lord set you free. I'll tell you why you're free tonight because the Lord set you free. I'll tell you why you can raise your hand because God set you free. He took the shackles off your feet so that you could dance. He took the weight off your life so you could clap and you can praise. He took the things out of your heart and your mind. God did it. The Lord did it. I'm going to tell you who didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. The best I can do is entertain you or make you angry. One will fade and the other will make you bitter. But I can't set you free. Nobody but Jesus can set you free. Nobody but Jesus can deliver you. Nobody but Jesus can make you shout. Nobody but Jesus can bring you out. Nobody but Jesus can resurrect your dead and dying life. Nobody but Jesus. That was a spirit move and the Holy Ghost did it. And the Holy Ghost did it. And the Holy Ghost did it. Yay! Hey! I feel it. The Holy Ghost did it. I'll tell you what the Lord did. He restored you and he made you new. He gave you new life. Found in John chapter 3. And then if you're here, I submit, I guess. He gave you new life fellowship. Found on the crossroads of America. (laughs) So you got new life and you got new life. question is, why would you rebuild what God 
has torn down? What is it that you're introducing or reintroducing to your family that was once buried under the blood of Jesus? Why don't you go back under the blood and pull out all that junk and then hang it on your walls? God shattered those chains. He grounded them into powder dust and now you've somehow brought them back. They are the imprisonment of your whole family, your sons and your daughters, your grandchildren. They are a bondage of all kinds. They are lifestyles without borders and without limits. They are froth with immoral actions and the end of it is unholy and it's abhorrent against God. I stand here to preach the word to you, not to pacify you. And I stand here to preach the word to me, not to get it off my chest, but because the Lord wants us to hear it. I hope to see a powerful Holy Ghost revival in our time. I want to see it. I want us to reach people. I want us to bring people into our homes and into the restaurants. I want us to bring them into personal Bible studies and personal relationship. I'm praying the latter rain will be greater than the former rain. I'm praying that many people would want to come to the house of God. I want them to come to your house. I want us to go from house to house. I want us to have prayer meetings all over the city. I want it to be both planned and spontaneous. I hope everybody signs up for prayer on Friday night so that we can all pray together somewhere. I hope there's a host of people praying on Friday from Friday 7 o'clock to Saturday 7 o'clock. I hope we're calling on God I hope there's fasting all the time I hope people don't have to hear a called fast for people to fast I hope you do what I taught this morning and get your Bibles out on Monday morning and just begin one more time to read the holy scriptures of God I want your children to do it I want them to get their Bible I want them to have their notebooks I want them to have their little coffee or their tea or their orange juice I want that we gotta have it But the Holy Spirit is asking us, he's inquiring us, because as much as I want it, and maybe some, do we all want that? Are we striving to live a holy life, or are we arguing against it? Hear me, young people, and moms and dads, are you trying to live a holy life, are seeing how far you can get away from it. The Spirit is speaking to this church, and I feel that He is trying to reach others even beyond this room. So if you're watching me right now, this is a Spirit word. It's not a word just from me. It's a Holy Ghost word. Are you striving to live holy? Or are you arguing against everything that we know it's right? I say to you, there is a curse and there is a cost and you are never clever enough to escape it. You think that you can negotiate with this world. You cannot negotiate with the powers that be. They will suck you in and sap you dry. And what you think is a little pleasurable will become your undoing, ladies and gentlemen. And if you're not careful, you will rebuild the very things that God took down. I'll try to address everybody. I'll address our elders here. And I first thank you, elders, for loving the Lord and being faithful. Thank you. I would say to all of our elders, grandparents, don't get weary in well-doing. Don't get clouded in the love for your family and what's right in the Lord. Grandparents, don't make concessions in holiness because you love your children. There are many churches that have divided and split apart all over the country because grandparents chose their children and their grandchildren over the gospel and the doctrine. If you leave the doctrine, they'll have nothing to go back to. And you will affirm their mistake. This is a hard saying. 
This is a hard saying. This is greater than any relationship in your life. And heaven is greater than all the love that you have for one another. I feel like that's offensive to people. I feel like that's offensive. I want to see people when I get to heaven, but I really want to see Jesus. I almost wore it tonight. I got a big button with a 12-year-old boy's face on it. He's a smiling boy. We buried him after one year of being here. His parents are here tonight. His name is Jared. He was 12. He was in the youth group. He didn't know that he had a brain tumor. But he loved the Lord. I want to see Jared when I get there. I pulled out my drawer and I've got his... I, I still have his picture and the, and, the, and, the, and the pin that was given to me that day. I have it in my drawer. When I open up my desk drawer... I look at him, and just this week, I said to him in the picture, I'm going to see you someday. There's a reason we got to get to heaven. It's not just for our loved ones, though. We're going to go see Jesus. And when this world wraps up, we got to go see Jesus. And when you die, you got to go see Jesus. And when you're buried and gone, and your body is wasted away, your soul's going to live forever, and you got to see Jesus. There's something greater than this world. You've got to see Jesus. And to the young people, let me say, if you give up your purity and your innocence and your passion for God, if you give up your worship, you could so easily enter a bondage that will haunt you the rest of your life and you'll deal with the things you did in your youth, you'll deal with them when you turn 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 and 80. That's why the Bible says, remember your creator in the days of your youth while you're strong. Live for God. I'd like to just give our youth pastor and his amazing wife a little recognition tonight. I want to I give them some recognition that they are so loving and kind and would spend their life and their blood and their energy and their family time to love on our children. And I want to say, it's not your responsibility to raise my kids. That's my responsibility. But I thank you. And if my children are out of line, I want you to know, I trust you so much to love them and correct them. Because I don't want them to rebuild what we tore down. Young people, let me just say, if you fight this word and you fight your parents and you fight your leaders and you live an ungodly life because it makes you feel good, I want to tell you, there's a cost associated with that. There's a thing called skeletons. It's kind of a figurative word. But skeletons will fill your closet. And later on, you'll have bad memories in your older age about what you did in your younger age. And you'll never get rid of it. It's very difficult to get rid of that. And so if you build up what we're all trying to tear down. And what the spirit has torn down. What the spirit has removed. And what we're standing for. If you, if you re-engage all those things in the world then we'll go right back into bondage and there will be no new life fellowship apostolic church full of the blood and truth and power and holiness and godliness. So don't give up your youth and live in sin. And to the young adults, I want to say to all the young adults, because we had a lot of graduates today, I don't know how many graduates, 10 or 15 graduates, 16 graduates, to all the graduates, I'm not talking about where you literally sit in the church, but I want to talk about back row mentality. Because there used to be a day when the music started, you were in the front. Just because you graduated from high school doesn't give you a right to go sit in the back or never come to the front or sit in the third or fourth row. What happened? 
What happened? I'll tell you what we ought to have. We didn't cut this platform out for no reason. We cut it out so we could jam up here, pray, lay on the floor, dance. It's for us. We got to have altar space and worship and shouting room. And we got it. Now we got to use it. And to all the couples and the parents, go to your homes and get rid of every ungodly thing that would destroy the work of the Spirit in your homes. Go to your bedrooms and your kids' bedrooms and tear down posters and pictures that you would never bring to the house and put them on this wall. Because if you're presenting things in your home that are inappropriate for the church house, it's inappropriate for your house. Hey, if you showcase things in the privacy of your home that you would be embarrassed to showcase in the Sunday school room or in the sanctuary, it means that you are building something that the Lord and the Spirit at once tore out. See, our walls that we rebuild are a little different than the walls that God tore down. Because when we rebuild the walls, we do it at the cost of our children and our families. And they're not as high or thick, but they're just as powerful and strong. The walls that the enemy builds, the spirit can wipe out. But the walls that we build, he won't touch them. The walls that we build... Are the attitudes that we developed so that the preached word can't get through us because we have a wall up. And convictions. Most people don't even know what convictions are. What are your convictions? What are your boundaries? What are your limitations? What are your borders? What are your convictions? If your whole answer to your life is, well, that's what my church preaches. Well, why do you do it? Because my pastor says it. What? No. What did the word of God say? What are the safeguards for my life? What are my personal pitfalls? What do I need to personally stay away from? What did the Lord say in the scripture? What about the convictions of your life? Not the convictions, not the requirements to be on the platform. See, the requirements of the platform are they're pretty basic. I mean, I just, uh, in the platform I, I like on Sundays, I, don't, I, I would rather people not wear blue jeans. Blue jeans are not going to send you to the lake fire. A blue jean jacket. I, I saw a guy, he was wearing a blue jean suit. It was a Wrangler blue jean suit. No, I, I did not want one, thank you. It's okay. I don't care. I just had this thought years ago. I'd rather not dumb down the platform. It's not, it's not, a, it's not an eternal salvation thing. It's just, it's just a protocol. Just, it's just a protocol. It's, it's, it's it. I'd rather us not wear flip-flops up here. That's all. I'm not trying to be mean. It's just my thought. God didn't tell me to do it. Just my personality. Just my thought. Someday when I'm dead and gone, you guys can, if you want flip-flop, fine. Flip-flop your way to heaven. I don't know. You get there. But just while I'm occupying the role, I'm just going to let you know, no flip-flop on the platform. If you think that that's the way to live, you'd never, get, you'd never gotten the word. I'm not talking about a platform protocol. I'm talking about your convictions of your life and the walls you build up to keep the Spirit of God from speaking to you. Because the walls we build are different from the enemy's walls. The devil can only construct so much, but he can never defeat the, the Lord or the Spirit of God. But the walls we build come at the cost and the crime of our own salvation. We've built up walls so that no, we're no longer convicted and we don't cry out to God. You see, walls you rebuild keep you from commitments and prayer and intercession 
And our walls keep us from a move of the Spirit. And the walls we build is going to come at the cost of the blood of our sons and our daughters. I want to say to all the college students here, just because you're in school, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't pray and read your Bible. Just because you got classes doesn't mean you should drift away. Don't drift away. Don't pinch your pastor out. Don't squeeze me out by marrying someone or engaging yourself to someone who doesn't know the Lord. You're making it, you make it very difficult on me. Only love people that love God. Not because they're pretty or beautiful. But if you shut me out, what you've done is you just built a wall. I gotta have help here because this is not my show. This is our church. We have to decide. I can't decide for you. I can't decide what's in your life, what's in your mind, what's in your brain, what you hear, eat, where you walk, where you go, or what you say. We've got to decide if we're going to be a holy church, if we're going to be a set-apart people, if we're going to be a godly and a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a Holy Ghost-filled church. What's your pleasure? So I've come here tonight to preach something to you that there is a curse and a cost to changing the fundamental doctrine and the truth in the word of God. Don't, don't be confused. God is not mocked. Paul wrote, God's not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will also reap. God's not going to be mocked. You're never going to make a fool out of God. So I say, come on, body of Jesus Christ that occupies the, the corner of Wabash and Chamberlain. Come on, people of New Life Fellowship who occupies only part of the great kingdom of the Most High God. Let's rise up in the last hour. Let's forget about all the spirits and the rulers of this world. Let's shun all the cultures and society's pressures. Let's be set apart and holy. Come on, mama. Come on, daddy. Get your family together. I've been teaching you for two Sundays and now it's time to implement some disciplines in your own life and your own home and your own walk. There's got to be a boundary and there's got to be a limitation and there is in the spirit. And I implore you, don't fight it. Don't fight this. No one has ever fought the word of God and won. Don't fight it. No one's ever come out looking good and resisting the Holy Ghost. Don't fight it. Just give in to the Spirit of God and thank the Lord for setting you free. And don't bid entangled again with the yoke of bondage whereby you are delivered by the Holy Spirit of promise. God set you free. God brought you out. I'm preaching to the congregation. I don't know if there's any new folks in here or new people listening to this, but I hope maybe you'll get it too. But I just want you to know if he brought you a mighty long way, don't go back the way you came. Don't turn around because no warrior is worth his salt. No man that warreth gets himself entangled looking back he's not fit for the kingdom hear me you got to march forward you got to make a better commitment tomorrow and another commitment next week and another vow and you got to develop another conviction and a stronger conviction tomorrow and the next day and next month You ought to be getting up every day and crucifying your flesh and saying to your flesh, I will not. And you say to the Holy Spirit, I'll do whatever you want. You ought to say to your own body and your own mind, I'm going to subdue myself today. I'm going to bind up my own will and I'm going to follow the will of the Father. Yes. But if you don't and you decide to live immoral, or on the line. It'll show up later in your life. You'll play a good game for a while, but after a while, it'll show up. In time, you'll just be bound again because you went back to the very same thing. But the next time you go back, that won't even be the same. See, the Bible also has warnings about spirits. 
that when you are set free and you go back to it, you cannot determine how many spirits enter your mind. Demonic spirits, worldly spirits. In fact, the Bible says seven spirits. Multiplicity. You don't know what you're going to get involved in, the junk, the ideas, the false ideas, the false concepts. And there is no deception like self-deception. When you deceive yourself into thinking you're saved when you're lost, it's hard to pull you out. So I rise to say tonight, don't sacrifice your life, your family, yourself, your loved ones to rebuild the things that God has torn down. Be serious about your borders and your boundaries and your limitations. I want all the teenagers to listen to me. I'm counting on you. We need you because there's no church that's powerful like a church filled with Holy Ghost, holiness, set-apart young people. Please don't make me worry about what you're doing on Friday nights or Saturdays. Listen, we've always loved all of the young people who have had children out of wedlock. We never shun anyone. But let's work on this. We don't have to welcome them back because we never lost them in the first place. I pray tonight that the Lord will help us. I pray tonight that the Lord would save us. And I pray tonight that we would make a commitment like we've never made before. Close your eyes with me now. And out of your own heart, if you so will, commit something to God. I commit my life to you, Lord my path and my way.